From KCUR Studios in Kansas City and Missouri Humanities Council, this is Hungry for Mo, a podcast about the stories behind the iconic foods that shape our region. I'm Natasha Bailey, a chef, a chef, <laughs> I'm a chef, I'm Natasha Bailey, a chef, cheese enthusiast, and home gardener. And I'm Jenny Vergara, a freelance writer and the founder of The Test Kitchen, an underground supper club in Kansas City. Okay, Jenny, today we are going to talk about an aphid. I know that sounds really exciting, right? Sounds like an alien. Yes. A space alien. It is a little tiny terror that has several different life phases. When you think about an aphid, what comes to mind first? To be blunt, I picture a stink bug. Am I close? Like, not a spider, not a cockroach, not a grasshopper. Maybe kind of like a cross between a stink bug and a grasshopper. Isn't aphid a plague? (laughs) It was definitely a plague to the French vines. Florexa. Floroxa. Phloxera? It's Phloxera. Yes, thank you. Phloxera. Phloxera. (laughs) Phloxera. Phloxera. Again, another alien-sounding name. Yes! Phloxera. How this little bug went on to, as I say, virtually destroy every vineyard in the world. It took those babies out. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about Missouri wine. We're going to talk about the history and the great French wine blight. It was catastrophic. Okay, this is literally now my worst nightmare. Napa Valley may get the glory, but Missouri has a longer history of growing grapes and winning awards, especially in and around the small river town of Herman. You know, you have to kind of go back to the 1830s uh, a, a little bit to understand the craziness of European politics at that point in time. Do you know Doug Frost and his role in Kansas City wine community? I am very familiar with Doug Frost. Doug, you are a master and one of only four masters of wine and master sommeliers in the world. At this juncture, now I've been uh, in and around the wine business for about four decades. So I'm an old guy. (laughs) You're amazing is what you are. He is a wealth of knowledge and that's putting it very lightly. And the nicest man you'll ever meet. Ever. He's so refreshing to talk to. Yeah. And he he's so enthusiastic about, about American wine in general, mm-hmm. I think. There are lots of ways to, to kind of interpret what was taking place. But the, the simple short answer would be that uh, a group of, of German uh, emigres in Philadelphia had decided that uh, the ideal thing, the ideal way to continue the, the German culture uh, such as it was, was to establish a settlement um, somewhere in some idyllic part of, of this new, brave new continent, and uh, to do so as a, as a wine uh, beachhead, if you will. And, and they thought yes. Herman looked like just the perfect place. Of course, it wasn't called Herman at that point, but uh, they began settling people there. And the people who, who came there were uh, directly, uh, you know, supposed to be directly involved in the wine business. So Hermann was founded in 1837 by German settlers. It is the perfect microclimate for growing grapes and was once the nation's second largest producer and exporter of wine. The landscape there, the hills along uh, the river had a look that reminded at least some people of uh, portions of Germany, perhaps uh, the Rheingau and and such. At the same time, uh, there's no question that uh, it was an uphill, uh, a very difficult uphill battle uh, in so much as the, the classic European vine does not uh, prosper here um, in, in North America. There are some uh, problems with uh, a bug called phylloxera, which eventually uh, invaded by the 1860s and 1870s. It invaded Europe and, and destroyed things over there as well. 
but uh, the bug had evolved alongside the native uh, vines here. Starting in the 1860s, French vineyards were devastated by wine disease that were probably accidentally imported by America. Of <laughs> and course. One of these was Florexa. Floxera. <laughs> Floxera. It's a tiny insect which, in one stage of its development, lives in the soil and just destroys the vine roots. I mean, people were trying all sorts of crazy stuff, mustard gas, uh, flooding the vines, burning the vines, hoping things get better. Uh, it, it, it was, um, I mean, it, it takes, even though the problem itself starts in the 1860s, and by the 1870s, everybody in Europe understands this is, a, this is an existential threat to the wine industry. So then these Missourians stepped in. We had Charles Valentine Riley. <laughs> he was uh, one of the first to practice biological pest control. He is Missouri's state entomologist at that time. Um, Charles Rowley found the American rootstocks were resistant to the pest. So you said Missourians. It wasn't only Charles Valentine Riley. It was also George Hussman. So George Hussman, he had an actual winery in Herman, Missouri. Mm -hmm. So he was a self-taught scientist. When the gold rush hit, he went to California and then he came back. His father had bought land while they were still in Germany in Missouri. So his sister was taking care of the land and then she got sick. So then after the gold rush, George came back and started taking care of the land and growing grapes. And Hussman studied soil types and crossed wild and cultivated grapes to create hybrids that could stand up to Missouri's hot, humid summers and freezing winters. These groups of scientists were working to identify what was causing the wine blight. And eventually, they came up with the idea to graft French vines onto Missouri roots. Particularly in Europe, the idea that uh, planting these grapevines that brought the problem is somehow going to fix the problem was, was uh, for some people, a bridge too far. The wild Missouri vines were totally resistant to phylloxera. It's really not until the 1910s or so that it, on a wide scale, this replanting, grafting and replanting is taking place. Um, and, and so people like Riley and George Hussman, along with um, some other people like uh, Thomas Volney Munson, um, who worked in Nebraska before he went to Texas. And, and so Texas, Arkansas, Missouri can all claim some credit for um, helping not just to say, look, this is the solution, because there were other people who understood it, but they also said, and we'll help. We can get these, these vines for you. We'll get them to you. And, and so tens of thousands of, of um, vines were headed, there, uh, headed to France and, and greater Europe courtesy to, to these, uh, these kind of, kinds of scientists. Missouri grape growers overall shipped thousands and thousands and thousands of phylloxera-resistant rootstocks to France. Look at our strong rootstock. If, if that's not symbolism for this entire podcast, I don't know what is. <laughs> that's right. Our strong Missouri roots. We showing. saved wine. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, people understood, okay, these horrible diseases that kill our grapevines are all coming from North America, so let's plant North American vines, because we have like, you know, more than two dozen uh, grapevine species that are native here in North America, and we just graft the European vines on top of them. So, so Chardonnay, Cabernet, Zinfandel, Merlot, all that stuff is typically grafted onto American rootstocks. Um, there's places around the world where that's not done, but those are typically few and far between. So did we get a French Medal of Honor? <laughs> did we win? 
Did we get something for that? The city of Montpelier erected a statue honoring these events, and George Hussman will always have such a footing in the wine industry. He later moved from Herman to California, where he became one of the founding fathers of the Napa Valley wine industry. So he took his knowledge, and then he went and started what we all think of as wine country now. You're right, where we, where the entire country looks to for good wine. Yeah. Imagine the impact had he stayed in Missouri. Ugh. We would be Napa Valley right now. We would. We would we be really on a patio sipping delicious. Yes. <laughs> I think we learned a new trick there, maybe, perhaps. I mean, yes. not only did we save the wine industry, but, you know, it also taught us how to, how to be uh, better viticulturists. I don't know. Since the pandemic, it's kind of felt like we're separated from the rest of the world. So to kind of see through the story how we were able to connect with other countries and help them out when they were in dire straits without really having our government have our back, we were just a person who was sending things, saw a problem and came with a solution. That is really inspiring to me. And I think that should give us a great sense of pride. Absolutely. Absolutely. This story really, I mean, it, it speaks to kind of everything that you know, Missouri is. It's it was settled by immigrants. You know, who who dug in and figured things out. I mean, think about all the things they had to. Uh, somebody who landed in Missouri had to figure out along the way. Oh. And so this is just another problem to solve, right? Yeah. This just happens to be solving a problem on an international, you know, scale versus just a statewide scale, for example. But amazing that we could that little old Missouri in the middle of the country could have that kind of impact on. <laughs> All the delicious French wine that gets drank year after year after year after year. Yes. I think we need some of that sent over here as, as a thank you, right? There should just be yes. an, a never-ending flow of French wine that comes back to Missouri. That we just get... That, you know, whatever. <laughs> Every person in Missouri gets two bottles a year or something of French wine, right? Yes. I, I would. Think we should have I think that. a lot of people would really, My really ration. love that. My <laughs> ration. Yes. <laughs> I would love that so much. At least a little discount, you know. Right. Exactly. Today, Missouri has more than 130 wineries, and they offer 11 different wine trails, of which the Herman Wine Trail is the oldest and most famous. But that's due partly to Herman itself, which now is a tiny community of some 2,400 residents and more than 150 well-crafted 19th century brick homes, bed and breakfast, hotels, and structures on the National Register of Historic Places. So they have year-round festivals. Instead of having a steamship come, they, you can now do Amtrak's Missouri River Run, traveling from Kansas City and St. Louis, delivering you right to downtown Herman. I was going to say, let's not forget the impact that having a designated a DD in the way of a Amtrak yes. train has helped Herman in the state of Missouri, right? Because yes. now you can get on a train, which is a beautiful ride if nobody's ever done it. I mean, really, that, that train ride is amazing, gorgeous. One thing that really um, stood out to me was that Stonehill Winery, which is, they say it's where it all began. By the turn of the century, Stonehill was the second largest winery in the country. The winery's vast network of underground cellars, which are huge. They are so big, um, and still among the largest in the world. The famous Apostle Cellar held 12 enormous casks, each carved with the likeness of one of the apostles. Eight underground cellars at Stonehill Wine stored a, va- a total of 1.25 million ga- gallons of wine. That is a lot. That is so much wine. Wow. So when they say that the golden era ended and they had the passage of the Volstead Act in 1919, which brought prohibition, it was a disaster for Herman. 
and like the rest of Missouri, felt the full fury of the temperance movement. Local lore has it that the streets ran red as wine barrels were emptied and then destroyed. Even the vineyards were uprooted. So Stonehill, they took the casts and they were shipped to South America for safekeeping, but we never saw them again. The only thing that stands now is 12 empty arches, silent witness to the lost. I was like, that's so sad. So there's somebody in South America partying on our wine. Just loving Woo-hoo. their days. Just enjoying wow. all of the Missouri wine. Right? Oh, my gosh. For decades, the only evidence of the town's once, and this is Herman, once glorious winemaking past was its churches. Oh, yes. Which were still permitted to make sacramental wine. Sure they were. Or hidden away in barns. We know who was nipping. <laughs> we know who was nipping on that bottle, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So they they took Stonehill's huge vaulted cellars and they converted them to commercial grow- mushroom growing areas. Oh, <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. All that good dead wood. Yes. Right? So Stonehill has, they have been, even through Prohibition, even through the time when nobody was really thinking about wine in Herman, Missouri, they tried to keep it alive and going. And I think that says a lot, the resilience of Missourians. Even when someone says, no, you can't do this, we find a way to work around those no's and keep going. And that is refreshing. The Show Me State. After Prohibition was done, the town was dried up. Nobody was really producing anything. And then a family came back to Herman and started producing wine at Stonehill Winery. And that didn't happen until 1965. That's when Jim and Betty Held began making wine at Stonehill. They came back, that's 30 years after the repeal of Prohibition. Wait, wait. Prohibition ended in 1933, and it's not until over 30 years, even after that, that winemaking started back up again in Herman. I think that's where we kind of got lost in being a number one wine producer, and that's why nobody knows the history of Missouri wine. It is interesting that although here in like Kansas City, for example, we still had Pendergast, so we had booze flowing and we had jazz playing and we had clubs yes. open, and then you just go to the middle of the state, you know, or closer, I guess, to St. Louis, and you have vineyards that are totally destroyed and uprooted, and they're, you know, this entire culture of wine that we, the German immigrants had oh. started, just gone. Their whole way of life. Right. Just upended and gone. And reading it, it sounds like it felt like it was overnight. Mm-hmm. Like they, and they had just helped um, save the wine industry, mm-hmm. went through all of these tests and are being celebrated in France, and now they come home and everything shuts down. Wow. And then it doesn't pick back up again until 1965. That's a huge gap. Huge gap. I mean, a lot of years and a lot of parched people. Yes. Right? No no Missouri wines. No wine for you. No wine for you. So we know Missouri wine survived and helped save all these other vines. But what about the wines we're making here? We haven't even talked about the grapes that we grow and the wines we have here. It is worth talking a little bit more about our native grapes, like the Norton grape, which is our state grape. These vines are completely resistant to any of the phylloxera that has plagued the French wine. But today in Missouri, we have a lot of French hybrids and Missouri wines that come from native grapes and mostly French hybrids, like Norton, which is America's oldest native grape that produces a signature full-body dry red wine. When I tell 
California winemakers what it's like to make wine out of Norton. They just look at me and go, who would do that? That's insane. I mean, it's like, yeah, you have to work really hard to make good Norton. And so the fact that we make it means we've got some really talented winemakers in the, in the state. Other varietals you may have never heard of include reds like Chamberson and whites like Vignoles, ranging from dry to sweet and rosés made from the native Catawba grape. At the present moment, I think Missouri wine is, uh, and in fact, I'd, I'd say, you know, Kansas and Iowa and Nebraska, I mean, Midwestern wines in general are very interesting. And, and uh, you know, that's not a uh, damning with faint praise. No, they're very interesting in so much as there is a development of these grapes uh, around which there hasn't been a lot of uh, talk and, and development. You know, it has been pretty much a, 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 a the sole effort uh, once the grafting took place, the sole effort of a handful of people to work with these hybrid grapes, uh, these crossings between, you know, American uh, species and the Euro-Asian species to, to create grapes like Vignole or Norton, you know, uh, Catawba. It, you know, if you think of it this way, we've had at least two or three hundred years to figure Cabernet out and hundreds of thousands of different people doing that. We've had a, over a thousand years to figure out Pinot Noir. And again, hundreds of thousands of people working on that. When it comes to Vignol, which is one of my favorite grapes in Missouri, we've, we have a couple of dozen people working on it. And they've been working on it in earnest for maybe 10 or 20 years. So the fact that, in my view, they've already made delicious dry wine, kind of sweet wine, very sweet wine from this grape in, in just a handful of years is to me a, a, a great sign that the grape itself deserves our love and our praise and that these people are, are you know, scientists at the forefront figuring out how to make wine out of these grapes and, and to make it into something delicious. What do you want people to know about Missouri wine and how far we've come? There is still a misunderstanding about Missouri wine. People will still say to me, well, I don't like sweet wines. And, and one of the misunderstandings there is that, you know, a wine can be slightly sweet and, and it's not sticky sweet. And why do you hate that when half the things you eat and half the things you drink are sweet? You know, why is it that the, the wine isn't supposed to have any uh, residual sweetness to it? But also the misapprehension that all wines here are sweet. They're not. We have gotten, that's to say, uh, Missouri winemakers have gotten so adept at making dry wines that there are a number of dry wines. You simply have to ask for them. I think Doug's tagline there is Missourians talk dry and drink sweet. Yes, that is true. I mean, uh, so often uh, when people walk into a winery, you know, Missouri winery, um, there's already five people standing at the bar and a lot of those people like sweet wines. So don't be surprised if someone says, you know, what kind of wine you're looking for. And if you're not specific, they're going to pour you something slightly sweet because most of the people that walk in their door like slightly sweet wines. I mean, the, the, the wine that French tourists drink in Southern France when they're on vacation is, you know, rosé, often with some residual sugar to it. It's normal to like something sweet when you're you know, I don't know, on holiday. So don't be surprised if they pour that for you, but ask if they have dry wines, if you, if that's what you prefer, you'll be surprised. We've, you know, Missouri winemakers have become really smart, I think, at, at making uh, what I would consider delicious dry wines. I think we have a good path forward for, for being recognized as a, not a player in the wine industry, but it seems like we have more footing than most Missourians would think that we have in the industry. Very much so. I, I, I 
think a couple of uh, important factors are at play. One is that so much of wine country is very close to St. Louis, which is, of course, a, a very important uh, market and, and uh, certainly one of the largest cities in the in the Midwest. And about typically we see about three percent of all the wine purchased in the United States uh, is is purchased by the state of Missouri, you know, somewhere within its borders. And cl- uh, not quite, but close to 10% of all the wine consumed in Missouri is Missouri wine. That's a very significant number. And and so I think um, I think Missourians consume quite a bit of, of this stuff and, and might be surprised how, uh, what a big, you know, an important factor it is in, in Missouri agriculture and, and uh, in Missouri wine sales. You know, and it's one of those things where they are starting to be on restaurant menus across the city. Yeah. I mean, more and more and more have a Missouri section. Yes. Um, there's a place in the liquor store now that has Missouri wines on the shelf. It seems backwards, right? So we cared about where our food came from and who was growing it. And then we cared about who was cooking it, like what chef, who's touching this, do they know how to take these local seasonal ingredients? And finally, we're just now starting to say, and what do you, if you're going to have hyper-local food, what do you drink with hyper-local food? Yes. Locally made wines. So I think everyone who kind of claims to, you know, eat local needs to maybe re-examine what's in their glass. Hungry for Mo is a production of KCUR Studios with support from the Missouri Humanities Council. I just wanted to give you a heads up that there were some minor errors in our original episode. So what you're hearing now is an updated version. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced and mixed by Suzanne Hogan with editing from Gabe Rosenberg. Our team also includes Mackenzie Martin. Mike Russo is the head chef of KCUR Studios. Music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jenny Vergara. And I'm Natasha Bailey. Next week. You would be hard-pressed to find any Chinese restaurant in Springfield that did not have cashew chicken on their menu. We'll be learning about two popular Chinese-American dishes that were created to appeal to the Missouri palate, but ended up taking on a life of their own. Don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed to Hungry for Mo in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also love hearing from you. Shoot us an email at hungry at kcur.org or find us on Twitter. KCUR is at KCUR. Find me on Instagram at JJ Vergara. And I'm on Instagram at EatableKC. Looking to get a taste of Missouri wine country? Join KCUR's weekly creative adventure email, where we travel to Herman, Missouri, in search of some of the oldest wineries in the state, plus more adventures in Kansas City and beyond. Sign up today at kcur.org slash adventure.